Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. I'm a writer here at TechCrunch and I am joined by the absolute best, the cream of the crop. I have Natasha Moscarinas here. Natasha, hello. Hello, hello. The bar across the street has finally quieted down, so I think I can focus on this show. It's 11.45 a.m. <laughs> in San Francisco. I can't ask you which bar it is, but is it a, is it a dive bar? It's a dive bar. Ah, uh, Marianne, you're not by a dive bar. How are things out in Texas? Actually pretty good, Alex. How are you? Uh, I've had better weeks and it's snowing. So I'm just glad that we are here together to have a moment, have a chat and get through a mountain of tech news because it has been a simply bonkers busy week, even for a holiday week. So everyone, we are going to talk about Rebundle, one of the coolest rounds we've heard in some time. We're going to talk about telehealth through the lens of funding rounds for Wheel and Gale Healthcare, talk about Plaid acquisitions, fintech, and where that business is going. Then we're going to riff on Wordle and also say the word Wordle several times, talk about the Blizzard Microsoft deal and why that shouldn't happen. And then we're going to wrap with no code to the lens of Walnut and a company called Softer. Whew. It's going to be a lot. Uh, Marianne, where should we start? Well, let, why don't we start with Rebundle? I, I think this is a really interesting company. It's a startup out of St. Louis, female-led, and they raised $1.4 million for plant-based hair extensions. I think this is a huge market. I know so many women who get hair extensions, and I've never personally heard of plant-based ones. I think they use banana fiber to make theirs. So you interviewed them. Tell us more, Alex. I found them via M25, which led their pre-seed round. I know the guys over at M25, and guys and gals over at M25 pretty well, and they're a Midwest-focused venture capital fund. And because my parents are from Kansas City, Missouri, I have Midwest roots, and I went to school in Chicago, so I have a soft spot for the middle of the country. And so when I heard about Rebundle, I was excited because I didn't know jack about extensions. So I got on the phone with Ciara Amani May, the co-founder and CEO, and I had to just ask a lot of questions like, how much do hair extensions cost? What are they made of? How often do you change them out? Oh, I want to see the do audio you do it yourself? for that. Like, yeah. that sounds like it would just be a fun show. We should just I do agree. that. <laughs> she was incredibly patient with me. It That's turns awesome. out you can do hair extensions like up to five times per year. And the price range goes from very cheap for plastic all the way up to very expensive for real human hair. The goal here was to find a price point more expensive than the absolute cheapest, but to get rid of plastic, which can cause scalp irritation and so forth. And, you know, to me, this could be a high margin D2C business that has a recurring component to it, and I'm totally hyped. They were selling out of stock in an hour or less before they actually even chose to raise venture capital, which is a big green flag to me in that they were quite patient. They could have raised pre-product like we see a lot of D2C companies doing and use that to get to market, but it sounds like they had leaned on grant money and other non-dilutive capital, which just feels like a whole theme of this company being sustainable both in product and in their approach to building. Also, they have pink hair extensions or kind of fuchsia dyed extensions. Mm. And fuchsia is, is becoming my favorite color slowly. <laughs> Same. And, yeah. <laughs> my jeans get well, here soon. Oh, uh, awesome. we have, okay, guys, uh, I can proudly announce the first equity live event of the quarter is going to be a fashion show. And Natasha has just volunteered to host it. 100%. I'll just be like in the back with like a mic and jeans. Love it. Fuchsia pants. I, I can't wait to see this. Oh, man, it's going to be good. Um, but anyways, this is a company that I think goes to show how widening the aperture for both geographies and uh, topic areas can not only lead to capital being dispersed more equitably to people across ethnic or gender lines. But also it just goes to show how big the world is for things that you can disrupt. Like the hair extensions market is billions of dollars per year in the US. And I had no idea. It's one of those times in which it was great to learn and also great to see venture have a wider kind of view. 
I'm curious to see, like, I know right now they're D to C, but like if they'll ever move into starting to sell the extensions to salons or, or hairstylists eventually. Like I could totally see them not want to put all their eggs in the D to C basket Mm -hmm. and get some of those deals going. And we do know that a lot of hair salons and barbershops are starting to get more comfortable working with tech companies. So I think a collaboration totally makes sense. And also one thing that Ciara, the uh, CEO and co-founder talked about was the circularity of the black dollar. Essentially, because a lot of black Americans buy hair extensions, this is a black led company. And so it's great to see the creation and purchasing kind of inside the same loop, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that is a positive thing we don't see too often in many places of the economy. The final note is that they are building out production facilities in the United States instead of offshore. So just as a data point, Alex, to what you're saying, that the dollar is staying in a really awesome circle. So am to watch that, but let's keep turning on to wheel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let, let's roll right along into the telehealth section here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so two, two things to talk about here. The first one is wheel and the second one is going to be Gale Healthcare. Natasha, wheel just raised so much money. What is this company and why are they popping off? Yeah. So Wheel raised a 150 million Series C co-led by Lightspeed and Tiger Global. So two heavyweight top tier venture capital firms. They were also joined by Kotu and Salesforce. And their whole pitch that really, you know, they're a three-year-old company and their whole pitch from when they started was that everyone's going to need to offer virtual care. So we'll be the back end and we'll help providers, staff, clinical workforces across the country and world. And obviously the pandemic made that a very obvious pitch. So I feel like Wheel reinvented itself again and is now trying to go from point of care virtual health to end-to-end virtual health. You don't have to keep going to all these different brands for different needs. And people say there's no money in reinventing the wheel. Well, apparently there's a $150 million Series C in doing just that. <laughs> yes. So I do really like the fact that Wheel is trying to move into the direction of the follow-up care, you know, the blood work and referral to specialists and things like that. So I think that's crucial and a missing piece in a lot of the telehealth things I've seen out there. Natasha, I read this yesterday, so my memory has failed me on one particular point. Did they start by kind of offering care and then kind of pivoted towards more of a platform play to allow other people to offer care? No, actually, they were always an infrastructure, but okay. which I found really interesting because to be infrastructure is also to assume that there's going to be a huge wave of telehealth companies that are going to need your service. So I like that they had the foresight. Going back to Marianne's point on them becoming, I guess, more holistic. And as we saw from Roe, actually, that just because consumers come to you for one service doesn't mean that they're going to come to you for if they're going to come to you for skincare, they might not come to you for mental health. I'm interested to see how and who Wheel sells to long term, because I there is so much like bait out there to offer everything. And it probably makes sense to be a little bit more conservative in who you staff on your telehealth platform. Natasha, you're familiar with the company Deal, D-E-E-L? Yes. Billboards everywhere. Yeah. It essentially helps uh, people hire offshores so you can bring on full-time people in different countries. If they brought wheel into deal, they could say that they are, quote, wheeling and dealing. Oh, God. Do it. <laughs> Done. I actually Sorry. asked them. I asked them. I was like, are you going to help employers? start to offer healthcare more. And they're like a little off focus, but I think that might have convinced them. So <laughs> that was <Perfect>. awesome. <laughs> Any Another- startup that has two E's has to work together by definition. <laughs> Another interesting data point, another female led company, right? Michelle Davey built it. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the standout in my interview with her was like, she's building a lot for clinicians right now. Like her, the platform makes sure that the clinicians who do end up, she does end up staffing on the team like don't have to toggle between 15 different resources and i think that really goes into what we're going to talk about next which is 
tiring our healthcare system is. Yeah, so Gale Healthcare just raised $60 million for what TechCrunch said is matching nurses with empty shifts. But it kind of seems reversed, given that we have a, a nursing shortage in the US, uh, also impacting the UK and other, other markets, frankly. And so what I hear about is open shifts and not enough nurses. So it seems that we're actually pairing open shifts with nurses versus nurses with open shifts. But $60 million, Marianne, quite a lot of money for a platform that was originally bootstrapped for a while. There's a lot of demand for this. I, my sister-in-law is an ICU nurse in Houston, and I've heard firsthand how incredibly demanding her job has been, especially over the past two years with the pandemic continuing. Got to be huge demand for this. They're giving these nurses away to A, easily find ships and get paid in the same day. So I think that's a big factor as to why they're doing pretty well, because these nurses probably like that certainty and speed of payment. Yeah, I mean, the fintech angle is probably the only part that I'm bullish on about this company right now, <laughs> because they don't need flexibility. Because like you said, Alex, there's so, there's so much shortage out there. So they're not searching for work. And I saw in the story that Gale Healthcare is still taking the industry standard percentage fee from nurse income when they place them in a shift. So I'm wondering what this company, other than the fintech angle, is actually offering nurses if, say, a nurse already has connections and can find work easily, which I'm assuming is true. I think the idea here is that they would offer more total possible shifts for nurses to pick from, and that might help them pick a better time, a better environment. The healthcare world is incredibly specialized and kind of diced into small bits. And so maybe that matters in this case. I think this is like they have established this company and they've built this supply of nurses and there's an obvious demand for them. So the conduit is good business and that's why it's raised money after some time. It's not going to solve the structural issues at play. Their fairness isn't going to get better and so forth, but hopefully with money, they can do a better job. One thing that really stood out in the story was, uh, I think it was the CEO talking about how like people just, nurses will ping the company and like need gas money to get to a shift. And it's insane that there's this much of a shortage for this particular type of talent. And even in some cases, they can pay pretty well. And still we're seeing such inequitous solutions. Inequitous, actually, as well. It's a mess. Apparently, these nurses are W-2 employees and get healthcare benefits. So if there is such a shortage, why would you not just go work at like a hospital? Or what is the benefit to being a Gale Healthcare nurse? Maybe it's the flexibility is in the same day payment. I guess that's what it would be. Yeah. And that's why this company is profitable. True. I mean, yeah, obviously they're doing they're, they're seeing something that I'm not. Right. Um, but it just feels like there's something innate about the nurse profession. Unlike, let's say, lawyers, because I talked to a startup this week, Law Trades, I think, that's actually doing a very similar business and is like flexible work for lawyers who have so much work to do. We actually have the opposite problem with, with, with lawyers. If you go back and I'm going to be at once dating myself and showing my, my memory decline with age, I forget the year this happened, but there was a point in time in which law enrollment in law school collapsed because we essentially graduated too many new lawyers for roles that there were available for them that were attractive as jobs. And so we actually had the other problem in the legal profession and had to kind of bring that back in, into balance. When it comes to healthcare workers, if you're in listening to this show in Canada, in New Zealand, Australia, Britain, most of Europe, I mean, any country with a modern kind of robust single-payer healthcare system. You don't understand how wacky things are here in the U.S., um, but we are not making the structural changes required to solve the issues that this company is going to sit in between and kind of help a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm almost like, I'm, I'm kind of stoked, like, good job, Gail Healthcare. Well done. But also, like, can we fix the system? You know? Yeah, like, yeah. The wheel? Yeah. Reinvent the wheel, perhaps? Um <laughs> I can't right, like deal with all the wheel jokes. <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's move on. Um, last night, I stayed late. I, I made much type type late into the evening because Plaid bought Cognito. 
And you know what we don't talk about much on the show anymore? Small venture acquisitions. We just don't. Is that because they're not happening or is that because we don't give a shit? I, I, I was curious. I, I think part of it, why I turn down acquisitions is I don't get any numbers associated with them. You know, like I don't get purchase price or revenue, but the company that's being acquired. So it's kind of hard to, to really give it enough context sometimes. My bar for acquisitions has gone from like, if this is like super obvious, that's kind of boring. So I love when there's an acquisition where I see a company actually challenging or betting on like an, an entirely new promise for its consumers. Um, but I actually was excited about Plaid. Like I, I was really excited about this acquisition because I haven't seen as much as I thought from them. They could be a mass consolidator given how much capital they have. And this feels like the early innings. So I'm glad we're talking about it today. Yeah. So Plaid, just going back in time to bring everyone up to speed, Plaid was going to sell the Visa for somewhere in the neighborhood of three to $5 billion. I think it was, was it five? Okay. It was, it was, it was a single digit number of billions. And at the time of the deal, every VC that knew Plaid would talk your ear off about how great of a business it was. Yeah, they sold and yeah, 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 yeah. But they're, they're doing really good. They're, they could have gone public if they hadn't sold the Visa was the, was the narrative. Well, we have what's called a natural experiment because the acquisition fell through. And what happened was uh, it ran into a regulatory uh, brick wall face first, I think you might say. And so the deal was called off. Plaid ended up raising a bunch of money. Now Plaid's worth $13.4 billion. So a multiple of where it was. And that's Tunidash's point about having lots of capital and also having lots of stock to play with. And so this deal for Cognito, a startup that only raised a couple million dollars, was for about a quarter billion, about $250 million in cash and stock. That's about as far as I could figure things out. I don't know the blend. I don't know the exact price point. That's kind of where that landed. Talk to Zach about it. And it's interesting. Should we explain what Plaid does? I mean, yeah, it's kind of insanely simple, which is what always gets me. Like it just connects financial services to each other is my understanding of it. Now it feels like it's getting a little patchworky instead of plaid, if I may, and <laughs> it's trying to like build services on top of it. The reason it became famous or be lucrative is probably the better word is because it helped fintechs talk to each other. It has an API, right, that lets financial services institutions connect to consumers' bank accounts. Essentially, if you want to take money from your checking account and put it into Venmo, Cash App, whatever it is, and I'm not saying those are Plaid customers, I don't know off the top of my head, but like essentially Plaid will have the ability to link your personal bank account with a third-party service and do it safely. And as we've learned from Twilio and lots of other API companies, if you sit in between a lot of things in motion, you can make money. <laughs> and so Plaid's doing quite well. And this is where Cognito comes into play because what they do is essentially user verification for fintech companies, things like Know Your Customer or KYC, anti-money laundering, the kind of like stuff you have to deal with if money is in motion on your platform. Otherwise, you will be used um, you know, for fraud and drug money laundering and all sorts of things. What matters is Plaid is layering on top of its API connections, more services it can sell to its more than 5,000 customers, and they're kind of going up the value chain. Alex, do you feel like this price is cheap, expensive? I mean, it's a fintech buying another fintech, but, you know, pretty noticeably Cognito didn't raise as much as most out there. So I, I couldn't really figure out what to think of the actual price spent. I think it's pretty good. Here's why. 18 people worked at Cognito. I talked to Alan Mayer, the CEO, perfectly lovely guy. Actually, it was funny. I was talking to Zach and Alan, who were both in the same, I'm going to obfuscate this gently, the same part of San Francisco, if you will. Oh. And they were actually not that far away in two different places. It was very funny. Um, <laughs> I was like, you guys are back in my stomping ground. And I asked, you know, like where they were. And I know, I know like the intersections and what's around there. And I was Aww. like, oh, I've been drunk on that corner. Yes. Um, 
uh, so the point is it was an 18-person company, only raised a couple million dollars, and they only kind of half cashed out, if you think about it, because they got cash in one chunk of it, and then also plat stock. And plat stock is, in theory, going to keep appreciating. So they've essentially done an equity swap from having Cognito shares to plat shares. Now, which would you rather have? That's a great question, but I still think there's upside to be had in plat if it grows the way it hopes to, and if fintech valuations <clears throat> recover on the public markets. <laughs> it's clear even more clear with this deal that Plaid definitely came out better for not being acquired or to have merged with Visa. Definitely a blessing in disguise. And Marianne, one thing that you and I have noticed, because we just wrote a piece this week about fintech uh, venture capital activity, is that uh, there's not a shortage of money out there. So I presume Cognito could have raised more if it wanted to. So it must have liked where this was going. Right, exactly. And something I've been tracking over the past year, I guess, is Plaid building out or at least getting more comfortable with early stage startups. It launched that accelerator a while ago, if you guys remember, it doubled that. And I think this kind of like validates my thesis that that accelerator is partially just like their competitive intelligence um, <laughs> unit under disguise. Um, but overall, it makes sense that they're getting more comfortable with them because they're hitting that scale. And do you, I, I'm guessing we'll see more acquisitions, hopefully like surprising ones before they go public. So to put this into more pedestrian terms, the Plaid Accelerator is similar to the Coinbase Venture Fund yes. in terms of it being 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 early warning detection systems. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> ah, there's a thing happening. Okay, um, let's go ahead and uh, instead of talking about serious things and companies and all sorts of API business, uh, let's talk about a simple web app. My favorite thing in the world is the internet. I think it's great. And I also love word games. So Marianne, I have been d- deep in the wordle mines for days now this guy named Josh Wardle. He made this word game. He's a software engineer. And basically, he just made it for fun for his partner, for for the two of them to play together. It went viral. It's web-based. There's no app. You can't get on the app store. It's like everything that you have to love, right? He's actively not trying to make it go viral, not trying to sell. He's not making money off this. I think it goes to show kind of what he said in, in an interview with TechCrunch, that people do have an appetite for things that don't want something from you that right. aren't trying to upsell you or so forth. But Natasha, as we've seen, some people are willing to kind of take the idea and run with it and try to make a buck off of it. It sums up where we are as like a society right now. We have something great and we do something wrong with it because we're all selfish <laughs> and greedy. Yeah, I was like so bummed. But we've mm-hmm. seen a lot of pop-up Cop- ripoffs. Copycats. Yeah, yeah, copycats is the best word. Show up on the app store by other developers who are charging for money. So one of the clone games charges $30 a year to play. And we've seen this happen, of course, with other popular viral games like Flappy Bird. The sad part, I think, is that there's really nothing that Wardle can do, if I'm correct. There was a lot of complaints from the community. People were really peevish about this and were like, hey, you know, why are you allowing this to happen? But also just to the individual developers, one of them was actually bragging on Twitter about his success. And that was an episode and an adventure in tone deafness. Apple's been taking them down. I, I just feel like we're not set up to enjoy things that aren't an economic place. I think Natasha's dead on. This is indicative of where we are societally. And I, I don't mean to pick on Hacker News because it's a bit like, I don't know, drop kicking a kitten, like it's kind of easy. But, you know, there was a whole thread on Hacker News about, you know, why isn't he monetizing this? And how, what do you think about it? And it was an interesting conversation. There was more people there than I anticipated saying like, you know, it doesn't have to be a company. It doesn't have to be a startup. It can just be a web app. You know, look, people love Web 3, but let me tell you, Web 1 had some cool shit. Yeah. In fact, one of the cool things was Yahoo. 
where I now work. So <laughs> I there mean, you go. Honestly, it's very refreshing that, that the guy who started this is so seems so unconcerned with trying to make a company or money out of it. And it it's really it's so refreshing, but yet he's getting approached by VCs and he's like, you know, people want to monetize this. And I'm just I'm curious to see what happens. Is he going to give in? But even if he does, I get the impression that he's still going to try to keep some integrity around it. And I really hope that's the case. At least there's no crypto element to this yet. (laughs) Very true. Before we move on to other gaming news, I wanted to quote him from our interview with him because I think he really summed up and made me feel better that Wordle's not going to change overnight or get NFT version of itself. So he basically said when we were asking a little bit about his strategy and why it's such a simple interface. And he said, would I send you a push notification? I would definitely have to think about the contract I am establishing with the player. Do you really want me to notify you? Is it the best way? Why don't you just forget about Wordle a little bit? And I think that sort of theory or mindset in consumer tech feels missing right now. If anything, it was a little bit of a reset for people to like have a conversation about how to use apps on their phone. So I think it's a really awesome sort of feel good moment in tech that to start off the year. If you turn the clock back to 2007 to when the iPhone was released and you go back to the keynote, they talked about having the web, having your iPod and having a phone in one device because there weren't third party apps on the iPhone when it first came out. And so the idea was to bring a, a first tier, a, a, a you know full cloth web experience to your phone. And that lasted for approximately 17 minutes. And then third party apps were launched. The app store took off. And now we have essentially moved into this world of walled gardens. And that's fine. Maybe that's the way it was always going to go. Maybe there wasn't a way around that. But I do miss the web. I do. I, I love it when I go to someone's blog and it's their name.com and it's not on Substack or Review oh my or God. whatever. You yeah. know, like... That's mine. Mine is like that. <laughs> that's awesome. To me, uh, independently hosted, independent things need to come back because I'm so tired of, I don't know, like the stuff we saw today, like Zynga getting bought by Take-Two. Great. Now we have two gaming companies that are now going to be one gaming company going to be even bigger. Like, eh. So obviously the news of the week was Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard, which was actually the answer to a trivia question I went to last night. And I was very happy about that. Microsoft is now going to have to deal with antitrust concerns, allegedly. Can someone catch me up? (laughs) Yeah, so this deal got announced and we talked about it a little bit on Equity Monday this week because it dropped right around, actually dropped around Tuesday, which is when we did the show. And my first thought was, well, this is bold because Microsoft is worth several trillion dollars and its empire stretches from consumer hardware to enterprise software to global cloud computing to i mean it does everything but like music essentially because it kind of failed at that a couple different times but it also owns xbox and gaming empire and it has bought mojang which has minecraft it has bought bethesda which does famous rpg games and now it's also gonna buy activision dash blizzard which is itself the agglomeration of two different gaming companies damn um microsoft calm the fuck down you know like, you already own one of the platforms, and you publish games, and 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 leave it alone. Also, break up Activision Blizzard, fire the CEO who covered up sexual harassment for years, and clean house. Don't give them a golden fucking parachute. So this deal, which was a $68.7 billion all-cash transaction, which is insane, will make Microsoft the third largest gaming company in the world by revenue. So I guess that's where the antitrust stuff is coming in. I mean, are we going to allow platform companies to keep buying ancillary services and build them into their ecosystems to leverage network effects to crush competition? Or are, are we not? And if this goes through, I, I guess we have our answer. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're even seeing it already play out within Microsoft right now. They tried to acquire Nuance last spring for $20 billion, which is like a speech-to-text company. Yeah. And apparently that deal is stuck in regulatory tension in the UK. And so I feel like kind of going back to how you started this segment off, Alex, it's like, that's very confident of Microsoft to make this deal. And obviously very fun to talk about on the podcast. So I'm not complaining in that way. But I think it's another data point that we get to track and see if antitrust steps up. Well, you know what I I asked earlier, why don't we cover more venture backed acquisitions? And then we talked about how the Plaid Visa deal fell apart. The Microsoft Nuance deals in regulatory hell. And now this one might die. There Maybe we go. I've answered my own question. <laughs> but just throwing in some more numbers, though, the Zynga Take-Two deal from last week was, I think, about a... It was worth north of $10 billion, Somewhere in there, it was like, what, 12 it, it was some large number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nearly $100 billion in gaming M&A in, in a couple of weeks. So just going to show how active things are how much people are having appetite for deal-making. And frankly, I, I would throw in there how culturally important games are, you know, flat out. Like, I, I think people forget that gaming is much bigger than the film industry by, by an enormous margin. But if you look at the media, mostly you hear about which one's the films? Is that Oscars or is that Grammys? I could not tell you. Oscars. Which is bad. Very, okay, Os- Oscars. <laughs> and what, what's the Golden Globes then? Well, it's, it's also films, but it's different from the Oscars. It comes before. Is it, is it also movies or is it like TV mm-hmm. or is it like shorts? Um, or? I think it's a little bit of everything. I don't know about TV, but definitely film. And then why do we have Cannes, which is the, <laughs> the French town? Why don't we have oh, like okay, Toulouse and Provence? This is too much Provence? for me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> all right, I, I'm get, I'm getting like, I mean, the, they're all very important questions. There's for me a too. Sundance <laughs> Film Festival too. Let's not forget that. The only Sundance I know is Sundance, the guy, the gunslinger from the cool movie. Anyway, the producers are giving me the shut the hell up gesture. So I'm going to move us on. <laughs> they really did. Just give it <laughs> that to was, you That was quick. <laughs> Whew, guys, this is a uh, welcome to the censored version of equity. They're like, nope. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was just trying to say that culturally, games don't get the full benefit they deserve, and these numbers go to show how many people are actively involved with them. And with that, we're going to move on from all things uh, awards-related, I guess. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I guess like on the other end of gaming, another hot category that we haven't talked about in a long time is no-code. I was just asking a founder this week who said the word no-code where that word has gone, and he didn't have a good answer. But Alex, you probably do since you wrote about companies raising money in that field this week. Sorry for, for talking so much in a row here. Um, yes, briefly, I, I think no-code went away as a, as, a, as a buzzword term because it just became baked into a lot of software solutions. And the idea that people are going to have no-code interfaces, which is usually kind of a drag and drop uh, ability to build applications and draw logic out with images as opposed to code, um, is now kind of de facto. It's standard. And it's no longer something to call out. Like every company now analyzes buckets of data inside their application to generate insights. You know, we don't need to slap AI on everything, right? We just kind of expect it. And to me, that's kind of where no code is gone. Um, Marianne, I'm, I'm just curious, you cover FinTech. Is there a no code thing in FinTech at all? Or is that is that not kind of land in your domain? There is to some degree, but when I've covered it more recently, it was in the context of apps, a company in Brazil, for example, app Abstra recently raised $2.3 million in a round led by SoftBank to help designers and programmers build professional apps with a no-code tool. And these are designers and programmers that probably could do it with code, but this just gives them an easier way, a faster way to get it done. And that's, I think, one of the driving factors behind the no-code boom is the kind of global developer, I would say shortage, if you will, or at least we don't have the right developers trained in the right required languages and frameworks and so forth. Two rounds of notes recently, one of which was softer, S-O-T-F, 
sorry, S-O-F-T-R. They raised $13.5 million in a Series A led by First Market. And essentially what they do is they let people build apps on top of Airtable databases and they're expanding their backend to support sheets and other things. They want to build an ecosystem and it's actually a pretty cool company. We've also seen Walnut just raised $35 million Series B after a $15 million Series A last August. And they're growing, Natasha, like, like a weed. Yeah, I mean, I think we knew that no code was going to be a big deal because of distributed work. And that was like the obvious trigger for so many teams rushing it. But I I don't know. I'm still surprised that we saw the maturity cycle go so fast. All startups are moving faster, right? Like everything has to be done faster. Timelines, product timelines, everything is has moved up, right? The pandemic kind of accelerated a lot of that. So if you bring in no code or low code tools, it gives some companies who maybe have lower budgets a way to move faster in a way that they might not have been able to before. And so I think that could be a factor. And another thing that the CEO of Software told me, her name is uh, Marian Hakobayan. She was like, look, also Gen Z matters here because Gen Z is a bit more entrepreneurial. They're not exactly desperate to go find that first job per se. They want to build their own stuff. And so no code solutions are a way to open up many new avenues for them to build. Mostly when I hear about Gen Z, I hear kind of snarky comments. I, I was a millennial when millennials were being blamed for everything from like gas shortages to avocados. And so like I'm familiar with this discourse. Essentially, no one likes the kids because everyone thinks the kids are entitled, too busy, whatever. Uh, and it's always wrong. I'm seeing this firsthand with my teen son, who's a Gen Zer. He's teaching himself to program, to code, learning Python. He's building websites. He's doing a lot of amazing things. And and he's absolutely one of those Gen Zers that would probably go on and be very entrepreneurial. He has no desire to work for anyone. So, so if he's any kind of indication of that mentality, he's definitely an example. Yeah. To me, that's like such a beautiful note to, you know, unintentionally end the show on. Seeing people get really comfortable speaking the language of tech means that there's more opportunities for them to enter tech long-term. And I'm so here for that. Mary and Natasha, as always, an absolute treat. Everyone, the show's back on Monday and next Wednesday and next Friday. So we'll see lots of you. It's a busy year. Stick with us. We'll try to keep you up to date. But in the meantime, goodbye.